Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dan Shepard. I'm joined by Minica Mouse. Hello. Hi. Minica. Yeah, that's, that's kind of nice, right? That is. It's a mixture of miniature and Monica. Monica. Minica. Minica Mouse. What a day. What a day. What a day. It was a Saturday. It was a long Saturday chat, afternoon chat. And um, if, if anyone's listened to this, I'm sure they've heard me say this, but I mean, the sole reason I got interested in movies is Pulp Fiction. I thought, what on earth is this thing I've just seen? And how does one write something like that? How does one direct something like that? Tarantino's my just all-time favorite filmmaker. Yeah. So enormous. Privilege. We left the interview and we hung out on the deck and I was pretty euphoric. Yeah. It felt so fun to get so to special. talk to someone I idolize like that. What a brain. Mm. Incredible. Okay, so, you know, Quentin is an Academy Award winning and Golden Globe Award winning film director, screenwriter, producer, author, and actor. Uh, Pulp Fiction, of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Death Proof, The Hateful Eight. Oh my God, what an epic career. Uh, he has a new book out called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a novel version of the movie we all loved. So please enjoy Quentin Tarantino. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be Rob specific. and I received some texts this Yeah, I was locked morning. out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, Talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. He's an object expert. He 
seems we're the exact same height. Oh, you're 6'2"? Six 6'2 two? Six two and change, right? Yeah, yeah, Sometimes yeah, exactly. Six yeah, three, yeah no, no, good. that's that's strange. It, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think stuff like, like that was variable, but I... <laughs> yeah. I just got to say, I'm so, so fucking thrilled you're here. I truly, oh, truly you. am. I've been hoping for 20-some years I'd get to chat with you. Oh, so yeah, I always kind of figured we would bump into... Uh, we know so many of the same people and everything, yeah. and it just kind of never happened. In tall guy meetings. Yeah, We're yeah, both exactly. in and out of tall guy meetings. <laughs> but also a really good, cool member of my crew, Darren, who mm. works on the sets and everything. He worked on chips. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh, oh okay, wonderful. I can never tell you exactly what his exact job is. He's like making sure that the set direction is correct and is right in the way, but he's not the set decorator. Okay. He's sort of like the guy that makes sure that everything is right. And whoa, what the fuck are you doing with that? Move it back there. That yeah. doesn't go anywhere. Okay, now we got to move all this shit over to the so left side of the room. Okay, now move. Now we move everything to the right side. So he's like visual continuity. Yeah. Maybe. All of these are bad descriptions of what he does, and I'm sure are totally insulting him. But he's actually, especially when it comes to the script supervisor, he's like, he's essential. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Did he say mean things or nice no, things? He said really, things. No, he said really nice things. Okay, actually. good. Oh, this is a great first question. So during that exact same time, some crew of mine had come directly from Revenant, or they had quit, or I, I don't know what they did. But I heard enough tales about the experience on that set that I started getting insecure and thinking, I guess you got to be an asshole to make a perfect movie. That's what I started buying into that notion. But then I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, I've certainly not heard that reputation about you, that you're a fucking asshole and screaming at people. I don't know why I never think of you when I'm trying to make a counter argument. Like, <laughs> you can be brilliant and nice. Like, you're, yeah, yeah. you're kind of a joy to be uh, around on set, yeah? Well, the thing about it is, hmm, it's a good question. You're saying, I'm trying to Because you hear this, right, right? Oh, no, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Me, when I'm making a movie, that's one of the happiest times of my life. And I really want the crew, we're like a family. And also I've, I've made enough movies now that now I've got a bunch of people that I use again and again and again. At least I've been using them, some of them, one in particular, all the way back to Reservoir Dogs, my script supervisor. But everybody else, I've pretty much since the 2000s, uh -huh. I've been working with a lot of them. We just have the best time together. Yeah. And so it's like every three years or so, we get back together and we make a movie and it's amazing. And my whole thing is, especially for the crew members who are coming in who haven't worked with me before, my whole thing is I want them to feel, as we're getting down to the last few weeks of the movie, I want them to feel, oh, wow, the next job's gonna suck. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a great goal to give somebody. <laughs> and it becomes a mantra. All right, yeah, that, that yeah. they say to each yeah. other, like, boy, after this, the next job's gonna fucking suck. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to try to yeah. practice it. In a more Machiavellian way, it's also what you might think of, like, when you're breaking up with a girl, like, I hope her next boyfriend sucks. Yeah, right. Like, so by comparison, I seem like I was a real gym. Hope she gets a fucking loser the next well, time Well, if you're around. the one breaking up with her, she probably... <laughs> That's not going to go the way you want it to. Oh, is that your oh, theory? Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> oh. I'm just, just here to say that. Bear, in the Labanza. <laughs> bear with us, Quentin. We've got to patch through a couple ex-girlfriends and find out if yeah. that's been the case. Yeah, please hold. I don't know. I guess did that ever even cross your mind as you were like an aspiring director of like, oh, what's the personality type at the helm that can get these amazing results? Did you even worry about that kind of thing? Look, when I was younger, I was like, especially making Reservoir Dogs, I was 28 or so. So like, 
I couldn't believe they were letting me make a movie. And basically, except for the PAs, everybody on the set was more experienced than I was. Right. So like if the key grip had a tantrum, I'm not stopping him. I mean, you know, <laughs> right, right. Uh, I was able to lead by respect. Yeah, yeah. Now, as time has gone on, I've changed. I'm like, no, this is my set. And I actually understand everybody's job. And I know when you're not doing a good job. And there has been times that I have had a problem with crew members because uh, they weren't up to snuff. Mm -hmm. They weren't good enough. And the biggest difference between, say, maybe Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction compared to, say, the last 20 years, especially the last century, is if I've got a problem with you, you're fired. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't got time to fuck around. Okay, okay, okay. No, I'm not talking about somebody messing up for the human error. However, there are some departments, no, that's not okay. Uh-huh. Messing up in human error in camera, you're fired. Okay, all right, okay. Camera is like the Air Force. You're dealing with expensive equipment, and the thing is, if camera fucks up, then everything everybody has done has been a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, absolutely a waste of time. Oh, yeah. The stress on them. There is a slight military aspect to crew dynamics. And the thing about camera is they're the Air Force. They're officers. Every member of camera is an officer. Even a camera PA, a camera intern, is an officer in training. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because they're responsible for the most important machine yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on the entire set. And so even if it's like the cool girl that everybody loves because she's so sweet and she's so charming and mm-hmm. she's starting out and it's great, if she gives you daytime film on a nighttime film shot, she's gone. Right. Yeah. And that's the way it's got to be. Of all the people, camera has to know there's a price to be paid for a mistake. I'm so terrified to be in the camera department. <laughs> but you understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but when you direct, I think you start getting, of course, I was acting forever. So, so a yeah. lot of these things were blowing over my head or I just wasn't mm-hmm. noticing. But you come to find out quickly when you're directing that camera works the hardest of everybody. They're there before lighting, yeah, yeah. then they're there while they're shooting, then they're moving. Like they're they ju- they don't fucking lugging stop. those batteries and lugging oh those boxes God. up and down hills. Yeah, dolly track, all the shit. Everything's mm-hmm. heavy. Everyone's got stuff on their shoulders. And because of that, I gotta say, if I had to give a department the coolest vibe, like guys mm-hmm. you want to be stranded somewhere with, yeah, yeah, or yeah, women yeah. you want to be oh, stranded, yeah, yeah. it's got to be camera. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your plane goes down over the Andes. If I have a crush on anybody on the set, it's always the camera girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, for actors, the appeal I figured out of camera is, so we're all approval junkies. That's why we got into acting. And then these people stare at you all day long, completely dead-faced, yeah, right? Because uh, yeah, they're just uh, operating the camera. Right. And so you spend three months with someone that never even smiled at you while you were being mm. your most charming. <laughs> yeah. And then so you're just, you're insatiably want their approval. I'm sure you had to have a situation where, as an actor, where you and a camera operator were grooving. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, vibe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the director said this or that or the other, and then you get back there, and then the camera operator takes his eye off the, the lens and just gives you a look. You're doing good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. Andy on Parenthood. Immediately I know who. <laughs> and he just knew how to know where I was going. Yeah, it was a very intimate, wonderful, cool thing. Okay, so as a super hyper hyper fan i just get it out there that pulp fiction for me is just the number one movie ever made that movie and raising arizona were the first (laughs) movies that i saw where like raising arizona i was like probably 14 or 15 i was like 
Why is the chase scene so different? Yeah. When he's oh, fu- I know. You know what I'm saying? Like, he comes out of the pickup truck and you're running oh, no, through the, the house. The whole Raising Arizona from beginning to end. Yes. You know? There's something weird going on. And if you're in Michigan like I was and you're young, you're like, why? Well, they're heroes in Michigan. The Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers. I mean, yeah, they yeah. put them on stamps. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But just watching it going like, oh, something's different. Like, something's different about this movie than the other movies I like, and why is it? Prior to that, Smoking the Banner probably was my favorite movie. But then Pulp Fiction, I saw that, and I was like, how did that happen? I mean, literally, like walking out on fire, like I've heard the three best albums of all time, like I just discovered drugs, like everything just going, oh, my God, someone figured out how to put on screen how people talk. The whole thing just made me... Curious in a way I don't think I could have ever gotten curious about oh, film wow. and television. So I just fucking love you. He's not blowing smoke up your ass. Uh. It's real. <laughs> but what you're talking about is like, I mean, I think there's certain key movies, not to necessarily put myself in that group, but I think there are certain key movies like that where it's like, like something like The Wild Bunch. And you go, well, what the fuck was that? Well, that's a movie. Well, then how come that's not like anything I've ever seen before? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. it's like Those are a- movies. This is something other. Yeah. And there's magnificent movies, but then there's some that are just, oh, no, that's a whole new language. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so exhilarating. But my favorite thing you do, I think, as a writer, it's the thing I try my hardest to steal or replicate is the way you start scenes where someone has the power. And through this elaborate turn of events that are so unforeseen and so subtle. And then all of a sudden, there's a flip. There's a 180. Now this person has the power. Can we agree that's one of your signature moves? Or just that you're a master at it? Well, you know, that's one of those weird things where it's like, I'm smiling as you're saying that because I've read pieces about myself where they talk about the power dynamic. But unless it's a plot point, that's not necessarily where... I'm thinking about as I'm writing the scene, that's just what happens as I'm writing the scene. I'm so fucking grateful right now I have goosebumps. I wanted that to be your answer because I wanted to know if moving to Torrance at three years old, so I'm child of divorce, single mother, all this Mm. stuff. I think we share a bit of that stuff. Move to Torrance, mom gets divorced again at 10, you move back to Tennessee, I don't know how that went for you. Not good. (laughs) I can't imagine it went great is my point. And I just wonder if in your head, as I had, I felt like I don't have the fucking power and it's an atrocity. And I'm gonna someday get the power. I just wonder if that's- By the time I got to be 15 or 16, it bugged me so much not to be 18. I just acted as if I was 18, like from 14 on. Uh And my mom would say, she goes, look, the minute you can do this shit and it's not my fault, go ahead. But right right right. now, it's my ass. Yeah. (laughs) But did you think socially growing up, how black was your neighborhood in Torrance? We lived in a housing track that was like incredibly integrated for like that time in this. I think it was one of the selling points at that time. Yeah. But then I went to a school that was pretty much like 80% uh-huh. black. So that was from like pretty much sixth grade on. Yeah. And and we're talking about the mid to late 70s. Yeah, so yeah. like right at a time when black culture is like fantastic, especially yes. as far as soul music is concerned. 
I didn't want to associate with anything that would the term white boy would be involved. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, I didn't listen to Kiss. Oh, right. I right, was right. the white kid that didn't listen to Kiss. No, I despised Kiss. All right, <laughs> because they represented yes. something I did not want to be. Yeah, ultra whiteness. Uh, yeah. No Black Sabbath. No Ozzy Osbourne. No heavy metal whatsoever. I uh-huh. mean, whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1580 K-Day, all right, the soul station out here. And instead of Kiss, it was Parliament. That oh, was yeah, our yeah. jam. Yeah, yeah. It was Bootsy Collins. Uh-huh. He was your Ace Freely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was absolutely the Ace Freely. So I grew up in a Detroit suburb, and I just was hyper aware of the coolness gap between me and the black dudes I was around. <laughs> well, I wasn't an other. They were my friends. They were right. who were around me for five, six years. Yeah. So I talked just like them. Uh-huh. My point of reference was exactly the same point of reference, at least pop culturally, yeah, was yeah. the exact same point of reference. We saw the same movies. We watched the same television shows. We were listening to the same songs. It, you know, when we talked about albums, it was the same albums. We listened to the same radio station. Yeah, yeah. What year did Black Belt Jones become popular? Early 80s? No, 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 no. that was like 74. That came oh, out, no, okay. that was Jim Kelly's follow-up to Enter the Dragon. I was going to say, I know Enter the Dragon's really early, but I grew up, and I'm, I don't know, six, seven years younger than you, and Black Belt Jones was a new thing to me, other oh, than yeah. having seen him in Enter the Dragon. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, the one, the Jim Kelly movie, is, is three the hard way. Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim, I mean, the, the trifecta. <laughs> yes, All right, That yes. was, <laughs> in the black community, when that movie came out, the, like the three biggest stars starring in a yeah. movie together, I mean, it was a seismic event. <laughs> right. I mean, that would be as if Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen all did a movie together. And they all kicked fucking ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was room for everyone to beat some ass in that movie. So when I go through your nine movies, there seems to be, as you pointed out, a pretty predictable pattern, which it's like every few years in general. But there's six or seven years between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. And I wondered... What's your explanation for that? Oh, I'm surprised that more people don't ask that question, actually, because it is a, an anomaly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit. It's like it's like yeah. someone forgot to put one in the order. Well, the reason, basically, was after Jackie Brown, I had got so famous. Yeah. Bob Dylan has a song on the Planet Waves album called uh, Tough Mama. It's a song about an artist dealing with his muse. Mm-hmm. And the muse is a tough mama. Uh-huh. And he has a line at the end, prison walls are crumbling down. There is no end in sight. I've gained my recognition, but I've lost my appetite. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so I wasn't going to quit or anything, but I was, I was over it a little bit. My 20s wasn't that great, even though in retrospect now it seems pretty terrific. But yeah, at the yeah. time it didn't seem that great. And, and I was broke all the way through it. Okay. Women found me hideous and I was broke. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I did have my problems, but then I saw a lot of movies and I had some good friends and I had a fun time at the video store. So in my thirties, I looked better than I did in my twenties and I had money and yeah. I was famous. Sure. So I decided I was going to live my twenties in yeah. my thirties for at least three or four years. Well, the scene has flipped and now you finally have that power. Like yeah. it happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The own scene of my life. Yes, right? yes, this is the moment. There's a 10 year buildup. <laughs> so I was just like living mm-hmm. for a while. I was just living. I moved to New York and I had a group of friends and, and was just having a good time. I was in no hurry. And what I was doing was 
I was writing Inglorious Bastards. I thought that was going to be the next movie. Yeah. And so I was writing Inglorious Bastards and people were thinking that I had writer's block because it just wasn't coming even though they heard I was doing it. I had the opposite of writer's block. I couldn't stop writing. Okay. And I was a little precious because I knew it would be my first original after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. But I mean, it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, okay, Quentin, get over yourself. What do you say? You're too big for movies. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, but I mean, I was even thinking at that time, I could do it as a miniseries, but nobody was doing that. I nobody was just was gonna doing say anything if that like was that. happening today. Oh no, right now, yeah. boom, it would, be no, it would be no question. Yeah, It would yeah. be no question. Yeah. So I just couldn't stop writing and I couldn't get the story started because I kept coming up with another cool vignette mm-hmm. before we actually get down to the plot. Yeah. And so finally <laughs> I put it away I go, okay, let me write something else. Mm-hmm. And then I'll attack this again. And after I've done something else, I'll probably have uh, more discipline okay. to attack this. And so to get over my epic-itis, I did Kill Bill. Uh-huh. Cut to Kill Bill part one and two. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, okay, oh, this is your anti-epic? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A four-hour oh, uh, right. extravaganza. And martial arts extravaganza. What was going on emotionally, though? Because there's two things I thought of in theorizing on what was that break was about. One is, if I'm you, Pulp Fiction comes out, it's a paradigm shift, right? All these kind of lackluster attempts at making it start coming out pretty quickly. I'm not going to name them because I don't, everyone, it's hard to make a movie. So, Mm -hmm. but we know which movies came out. And I wondered if you started feeling like, oh fuck, they're bastardizing my thing to a degree that I don't know that I can now do my thing. Oh no, not at all. That didn't happen. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I dug that. You felt flattered by it. I felt completely flattered by it. I mean, I always kind of thought of Pulp Fiction one, I thought about it a, a little bit like a rock and roll spaghetti western any old way, but I did feel that it was an attack at gangster films similar to what Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns were to western movies, mm-hmm. the standard western movie. Mm-hmm. So the way he would be doing his operatic version of, of a John Ford film or a Bud Bedecker film or something like that, I was taking this cheeky pop culture Gen X thing yeah. to the Martin Scorsese movies, yeah, yeah, which yeah, are like yeah. the more traditional right, right, right. gangster films of the time. But the thing is when Leone did the, the Dollars trilogy, I mean, he started an entire subgenre and then there was like 150 uh-huh, right. spaghetti Westerns that came out all in the wake and they could be different and they can go this way and they can go that way. But the father of them was absolutely the Sergio Leone movies. Yeah. Well, I was excited. I was like, one, I thought it was really cool that people liked my writing so much that they were trying to copy it yeah. and sometimes rip it off. And I kind of dug that because I, <laughs> well, well, because I didn't think any of them did it anywhere near as well. Well, I was going to say, had yeah. one of them been awesome, it might be a different story. But if one yeah. of them had been awesome, I would have been genuinely like, oh, wow. Hey, good for you, man. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I would have given them the tip of the chapeau. But the thing is, though, the fact that now I started a subgenre in gangster films yes. and crime films where I was obviously the godfather of that subgenre. Well, oh my God, I've literally done what Leone did yeah, in yeah. a really yeah. profound way. Big time. Did yeah. you know that at the time or in retrospect now you can feel Oh, no, no, it? I saw it at the time. No, well, you couldn't help but see it at the it time. Was really there was that obvious. weird time in the 90s where like, 
every second gangster film. You know, but then what you call, oh, Tarantino-like. Well, they're blowing people up and then they're making sargonic jokes. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. is ironic, which I don't think is the way my movies are. I think right. my movies are actually, I think there's a lot of emotions in my oh, movies. Oh, I think they're super sincere. Yeah, and they're yeah. very sincere. And I hold back, but the characters don't hold back. Right. The characters are not removed. I'm removed. My point of view is yeah. removed but it's like intense emotions going on on camera. For sure, yeah. let, let me also give you the compliment of, it feels every single character you have in a movie, and there's often dozens, they're all mm-hmm. ensembles, it's as if you treat each one as the lead of the movie. Oh, Whereas yeah. these other knockoffs of yours were kind of like, mm-hmm. they used archetypes, and they didn't care about the people that they were giving yeah, yeah. the line to that was right, supposed yeah. to be provocative. Well, and also what most people at a certain point called Tarantino-esque was like, hey, do you remember Speed Racer? You know, know, as the gang. Gangsters are driving or uh, something. Yeah. <laughs> Rice the roadie, the San Francisco treat as they blow somebody away. Yeah. Oh, and I yeah. guess that's Tarantino-esque. Okay, now my other thought was simply, did it rattle you at all that Reservoir comes out of nowhere and it's spectacular for the budget and it really launches you into Pulp Fiction? And then Pulp Fiction is just something, again, it, when Jackie Brown didn't do as well as, as Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. did you at all have like a moment of fear or doubt. Oh, God, not at all. I mean, one, Jackie Brown did okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, when you were charting the trajectory, it seemed like your third movie should be Star Wars. Yeah, no, I didn't feel that way. My whole thing, what had been going on for, with the exception of Raising Arizona, what had happened time and time again, to such a degree that it was practically a cliche, is these young independent filmmakers would come out with these, wow, just blow the top of your head off, drop your jaw, first films. Yeah, yeah. That just blew you away. And they had the worst movie they ever did as their sophomore film. Well, it really follows the trajectory of musicians, too. The uh-huh. first album you wrote your whole life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now you got three I, months to write Three months to write one. the second one. Yeah. And that had happened so much, it was actually a cliche. It was practically expected. Right. And not just even independent filmmakers. There was all kinds of filmmakers that I would see their first film. And, like, I saw everything. And, boy, I was really into first films. And when I saw one that was fantastic, I ran to the movie theater to see their second one. Yeah. And it was usually, at the very least, not as good, if not, like, what the fuck is this? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, if you've seen Thief and then you go see The Keep, you go, what the fuck is this? Oh, that's my favorite drama of all time, Thief. You're know, talking yeah. about the Michael Mann. Yeah, man, yeah. Uh, but oh. then you go see Michael Mann's next film, yeah, 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 The yeah. Keep, which isn't horrible, but it's sort of like, what where, the fuck? Yeah, where's where's Thief? <laughs> yeah. And also, there was also the situation where I was really known on, like, the college scene mm-hmm. with Reservoir Dogs and the independent film scene and like Village Voice, LA Weekly. That, it was big in the that, punk rock community. That That's how of, I found yeah. it. And, and, and really big in the grunge bands. Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, they all really liked the film and they thanked me on Uterio on their second album. And I'm sure it was because it's a great tour bus movie. Oh, sure, like sure, Like once sure. you like know it and you like yeah. it, then you can just put it on and then then, then, then then you don't even have to watch it anymore. You can just listen to the dialogue. Yeah. But the thing is though, Okay, that was in America. In England, it exploded. Oh, really? And I became like a pop star. Oh, wow. In England. And when Reservoir Dogs opened up, I mean, it just took over culturally. Political cartoons, they made jokes about it. And it was like, it was doing so well, they asked me to come back to London to do some more regional press and just more press because they were like, it's one of the hottest movies in town. Yeah. 
And I'd had a nice little art house hit. But when I landed, I saw the you difference. Of, I saw the difference between <laughs> having a nice little art house hit or when you've truly punctured the consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of yeah. the zeitgeist. And so everyone was like, well, what's gonna be next? What's gonna be next? And everyone was betting that it, I was gonna fall on my face. Uh-huh. And then it was Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Oof. yeah. Oh, oops. So it was like, <laughs> oopsies. Wow. Wrong yeah. bet. Oh, well, I'm going to ask you a potentially an offensive question, uh-huh. but but as you're describing the appeal of Reservoir Dogs, which again in the punk rock world in Detroit, that was the movie. You have such a fucking eye for what is cool in an uncanny way to the point where it absolutely everyone in the culture adopts it. Whether it's the music that was on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, you couldn't go to a fucking party in the 90s <laughs> in LA and not hear that soundtrack. Wasn't at one party without it. Do you yourself fancy yourself as someone that's cool? And if so, where is it coming from? Why can you identify what is so fucking cool? Well, I think I'm cool. Okay, good. Know? That's a good question. I think it's kind of a hard question. It is. Like, kind I, of a hard I, I, question. You need to sum up for me why you know what's cool, which you probably don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know, but rather than wimp out, I'll try to answer the question. Okay. And I don't, and I, but that's it's literally me trying to. I'm thinking about what sure, you're what sure. you're saying right now. I think there's something, especially to the Gen X generation, is they didn't have a lot, but they knew what they liked. Mm-hmm. They really, absolutely knew what they liked, and we were all too cool for school, uh-huh. but I wasn't. I wasn't too cool for school. I really, really liked this stuff. Yeah. I could be cynical and flippant about other stuff well, too. Well, what I was gonna say is the reason I say maybe you're not cool in the conventional way is that you are, the most beautiful thing about you is you're so fucking enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I'm, Which is kind of antithetical to cool. Fonzie didn't come in and go like, oh my God, this burger, where'd they get the patty? You know. No, 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 that's true. To me, actually, cool is an aesthetic, not necessarily an attitude. Okay. Okay. I, I know what you mean, but I've never looked at cool as necessarily an attitude of being above things or hands off or you, know, you come Aloof. to me. You yeah. come to me. I don't come to you. I never thought about that as cool. I thought about taste, what you dig, what you like, what turns you on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who wins in that fight at the bar between Vincent Vega and Butch? Is that, has that been asked? No, but, but he's a boxer. I know, but the way he says, you heard me just fine, Punchy, I think, oh, he's he's ready to go. Well, he is so he ready to go because st- he doesn't know he's a boxer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> he doesn't know who this guy is. Okay. Well, no, he does know. I take that back. No, he does know. He calls him Palooka. Yeah, he yeah, does Paluca. know. He does know, but also- He's got guns. But, but, but uh, yeah, Butch is a civilian. He's a boxer. This guy's a killer. <laughs> yeah. I just love that because you've met Butch and you're like, oh, yeah, this dude's fucking bad. And then you see him against Tarantino and Tarantino doesn't give a shit that he's bad. I don't know. It's fucking wonderful. <laughs> well, let me finish the question yes, you asked please, early please. on about Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. So Pulp Fiction, like just to give you an idea, with Pulp Fiction, I was hoping the movie would make about $30 million. Okay, from an $8 million budget, that was achievable. That would be a decent studio for me doing on a bigger canvas. Yeah. That would be good. That would be really good. I could have, I would have been able to make another movie after that. Yeah. And everyone would have made money and everyone would have been very happy with it. I remember around the same time, Damon Wayans came out with that movie, Mo Money. Uh-huh. And that made about $30 million. So I kept saying, Mo Money. That's what we're, we're, we're after the Mo Money audience. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then my producers were like, okay, but his movie was 97 minutes. You're going to make less money at two hours and 37 than yeah. Mo Money. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare.
We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. We are supported by Men's Warehouse. When you wear a tailored men's warehouse outfit, it makes you feel confident, like you can do anything. Whether it's a snappy suit that makes you want to dance at a wedding like no one is watching, or a smart casual outfit that gives you the confidence to nail a job interview. Yep, you should give Men's Warehouse a shot, and here's why. Men's Warehouse is the only nationwide men's clothing store that has a tailor in every store to fit your suit, shirt, jeans, etc. to your bod. Men's Warehouse features clothes from the best brands in the fashion world like Vera Wang, Kenneth Cole, and Calvin Klein. Men's Warehouse isn't just suits. They have jeans, t-shirts, shoes, hats, and even underwear. The tailoring is game-changing. It really makes a huge difference in people's outfits if it's tailored to your body. You could have a billion dollar suit and if it doesn't fit it looks terrible yeah agreed yeah it's key men's warehouse is everywhere with 600 plus locations nationwide so if you need one and you will there's one near you feel like you can do anything in an outfit from men's warehouse visit your men's warehouse store or click or tap to shop online So even when we won the Palm d'Or and all this excitement and everything, the last thing I wanted for it was to come out and then be a disappointment. Yeah. So I was like, okay, guys, don't lose your mind. Yeah. This is still Hollywood. We're still coming Let's off Let's not start of, sucking each other's dicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> We're still coming off of the 80s. I mean, we, the audience hasn't changed yet. They will change and this movie will partly change them. Yes. But that hadn't happened yet. So keep it in mind. I had also had the experience with True Romance where it was like everyone loved it, but yeah. the audience didn't know how to take it. But they could have, like if they- been primed. If they would have, if they could have gotten it, it could have been huge, Yeah, but it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it made me think, well, I guess I've, I've got a small audience. I guess that's the way it is. So anyway, when it came to Pulp Fiction, then it comes out and it does what it does and it, and it becomes this thing. 219 million. <laughs> Just a little above 30. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, that was, that's a phenomenon. That's sure. nothing I'm ever going to be able to duplicate. Uh -huh. That's not going to be my track record. And you yeah. had that presence in oh, mind. Absolutely. To think that. Oh, absolutely. 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 
it's got me out there. I'm set now. I can yeah. make movies for the rest of my life. In my mind, I'd be like, I could probably make three bad ones. Like, I'll be able to get no, three. No, I don't want to make any bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, go, worst case scenario, I bet I can get three yeah. going. <laughs> no, I'm thinking, okay, I make a great one, but no one goes sees it. I, I'm still good. But the thing is, I was never in competition with Pulp Fiction. Oh, good. So it's like, oh, the next one might make 50, and then this one will make 60, and then this one will make 45. Yeah, I, I figured I was just in, and then, and then maybe I'll get lucky and, and that will happen again. Yeah. Also, there was the whole thing of, I wanted to go underneath Pulp Fiction. And you're not gonna try to top Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to go underneath it. That's why it's kind of has a different tone mm -hmm. and it's not trying to blow your mind or no, anything. No, it's so, it's so much slower immediately. Yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, the pace is much different. Yeah. I remember some guy, some financier at a film festival or something, he goes, so tell me, Quentin, now that everything is said and done with Jackie Brown, do you regret casting Robert Forster and Pam Greer in the roles? And do you wish you had cast bigger actors uh -huh. in the roles? And I go, well, I mean, I was really happy. Oh, forget about the performances. He's talking simply money. Yes, of course. Okay. And uh, I go, well, I was really happy. A Pam Greer, Robert Forster movie made about $35 million. That's, that's yeah. pretty fucking great. And he goes, well, yeah, but that's all you. I go, lucky me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. Okay, I'm famous enough that I can cast Pam Greer and Robert yeah. Forster as the star of my studio film? Yeah. Great. Absolutely. You've worked with so many enormous movie stars at the peak of their powers. What makes you good at it? I mean, I'm guessing that you're just so enthusiastic and such a great cheerleader that, or have you clashed? Do you clash? I haven't had serious clashes. I mean, not especially not with any of the leads okay. of the movies. It's usually a situation, I wouldn't want to work with an actor, especially a star situation that was just completely enamored with me and just wanted to have a Tarantino film in their filmography. I don't mind that being a, you know, sitting in the back seat or in the rumble seat or something. Yeah. But that can't be the driving reason why they're doing it. It has to be because they read the script and they really like the script. They think it'll make a really terrific movie and they really like their character. Yeah. That's normally is the situation. Yeah. They like the script, they responded to the script. And if you read my script, you can kind of see the movie. Oh yes, mm -hmm. I've read them. They, for people who have not read scripts, there's a very, very traditional format. Every single script abides by it, except for Quentin's. <laughs> Quentin's, you're like reading prose. It's like you get this 200 pages and <laughs> it, the movie's there, but it is not in the format and wow. in tough shit. And it kind of reads like novels. Yeah, yeah, the most fun it, yeah. I've had reading scripts has been the, oh, the thank few you. of yours that I've read. Yeah, thank you. All the vibe that's in your movies visually yeah, and, uh -huh. and, and sonically with the music you choose, it's all in the writing. Like when you read it, it's all fucking right there, which is kind of crazy. So when the actors are coming up, it literally is a situation where they want to play this character. They know the story. They like the story. They, they like the character. And they know since I wrote it that I know this character. Like when Robert De Niro did Jackie Brown, he's famous for going and finding a real person right. to base it on and that's his process. Well, he knew I knew the character. So I was the person he asked questions about. Yeah, yeah, about. yeah. And how much, because actors often really love to request that you write something specific or make a change. Is that on the table with people? Well. <laughs> That's a no. That's a hard one, though. Probably, well, I wouldn't want them to, but I'm just curious. Certainly, mm -hmm. here's what I would imagine could happen. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, give me a scenario. So what I had heard about our shared love movie, Raising Arizona, was that Nick Cage and them didn't get along all that well. 
one of the only experiences they had where they didn't get along that well. Maybe the greatest performance in any of their movies. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but what I heard Nick Cage say later or read, which would make a tremendous amount of sense, is that he said everybody after Raising Arizona had the benefit of Raising Arizona. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And all I had was Blood Simple. Mm -hmm. So these people are asking me to do some pretty outrageous shit, and they're mm -hmm. filming it in a pretty outrageous way for the way he's been making movies. So mm -hmm. he's pretty scared. He doesn't yeah. know if they know what they're doing. Right, yeah. And I would imagine for you, Reservoir Dogs could have had that. Post-Pulp Fiction, people trust you. But mm -hmm. I wonder even if on Pulp Fiction that you have a huge star in that. You have Bruce Willis. And really, you just have Reservoir Dogs. And now this thing's getting bigger. Well, it was an interesting thing. I mean, look, if anybody was going to fall into that camp, it would probably be John and then maybe a little bit Uma. Not Uma when she was shooting the movie. Right. But in trying to visualize what this movie was when she read the script. Yes, yeah. yeah. Bruce, it wasn't anything because he loved Reservoir Dogs so much. <laughs> he was like one of the biggest stars in the world yeah. at that time. So yeah. I mean, part of the reason the movie was made was because he said yes to it. And he was just down like 120%. And he got to look so fucking yeah. cool. It's the coolest he's ever yeah. looked. And it's not that John loved me and John loved the character. and It was out of his comfort zone is what yes, I exactly. would imagine. But everything you're saying was only in the script stage okay. when they're figuring it out. Once we're in rehearsals and doing the movie, it was, everyone was 100%. But John Travolta was a little bit like, okay, so I'm shooting heroin <laughs> and I'm killing people and I blow some guy's head off and it's a comedy? <laughs> it's a reasonable question. To well, again, no one had seen, yeah. I mean, outside of Scorsese yeah. where you find yourself they're shoving the mailman's head into the fucking oven. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. find yourself laughing. You don't know why. Other than those experiences, it was a pretty unique. Well, I mean, it was one of the things I was really pleased with was uh, like probably my favorite writer of all time is uh, the film critic Pauline Kael. And she quit the business just before my first movie came out. So oh, I never bummer. got a, an official Pauline Kael review. But they interview her every couple of years about stuff. And everyone wanted to know what she thought about Pulp Fiction. And then she said, I'm going to quote Paul and Kale's review about my own movie. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Well, it's not officially a review, all right? I'm quoting a line she said in an interview. She said, well, everyone's like saying that it's revolutionary and it's rewriting movies and everything. Okay, it's not all that. Okay, they're, they're, make, they're making too big of a deal about all that. It's not that revolutionary. Other movies have done things like that. Structurally, she meant? Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. It's not all they're making it out to be. And the annoying part about them making such a big deal about all this accoutrement uh -huh. is the fact that they're not talking about what he did that really is unique. And she goes, what he did is he created a new style of comedy. Yeah. Because that kind of violence had never really been connected to comedy before. I guess you can say something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but it, uh, my no. stuff is not the same. The only thing I think is similar is just Scorsese. That's yeah. the only time that you yeah. kind of find yourself- But he's not but full not, on comedy. He's not, he's not. He's yeah. not no. yeah, there's actual comedy, uh, you know. Yes. Yeah, especially in that third story. And not all the way through, but especially the third story. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is the grossest part. And then she said, it works, because it's really funny. Yeah. It's a really funny movie. So what he's doing that actually is revolutionary, he's not getting enough credit for. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's such a- That's interesting. Were you happy with that kind I'm of- <laughs> Thrilled. <laughs> and the sincerity of the acting in a comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
mixed with all of that right. makes yeah. it no is also so different. No, they're at that not giving time. comedic performances. No, performance. no. well, they're giving the great comedic performances, but they're not. They're not played comedically. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No one knows they're in a comedy, yeah, it's which is awesome. the best so part. Good. Okay, I just got to geek out on Brad Pitt for one second because I would leave my wife for him in half a second. <laughs> you must have felt that way about him as well, yeah? Well, I don't know that. <laughs> you're not going to leave You're your not going to leave him? I don't think I'd leave my wife for him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just find that annoying, frankly. <laughs> that he looks like that? That he's so fucking good looking. Oh, it's, it's, oh I know. No, it's I, no, maddening. I don't dig that about him. I oh. find it fucking annoying, oh. and I never want to have a photo taken next to him oh. ever. Oh my God. I love Brad, but I don't want to do photos with him. Can I? He still, <laughs> still looks so good. Well, especially in Once Upon a Time. I know. Oh, but okay, so maybe you're kind of answering my question, but I was, I was just thinking someone who has such a, a, an eye for aesthetic of what is cool, mm -hmm. and that motherfucker is just so cool. Mm -hmm. Him opening the dog food, yeah. just, I'll watch him. He could have made a fucking buffet bar. You could have yeah. shot the whole thing. I would have watched it. It could have been six hours. Do you get lost in watching oh, absolutely. him? Absolutely. I mean, it's just great as a writer or a director in that situation where, like, I mean, the reason I'm stopping the movie, some could say, <laughs> to show <laughs> four to five minutes of Brad opening up dog food yes. in his trailer filled to the brim <laughs> with a bunch of shit, but, but it's filled to the brim with a bunch of shit because those are all of his possessions. Uh -huh. yeah. And you're seeing who he is by all that stuff. Was so you two get to know Cliff. Yeah. And Brad is not given enough credit for what a behavioral type actor he is. You know, he knows who the guy is and you just allow him to just do his behavior, yeah. which is dealing with the dog and cooking his mac and cheese and popping his beers. Oh doing the wolf tooth dogs food and it's that's all you need you can go you can yeah. go I could watch that for 6 minutes yeah oh i was i wish there was more sure. i could have i could have watched 5 more minutes of him watching manix yes yes yeah, yeah it's like a theater performance in a way watching that i imagine most of the times when you're writing now what percentage of it you're writing for people generally no, right no 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 it's, oh, no it's a mix oh, well it is. like okay. well for instance i uh, did you I, write that role for him no i couldn't write for Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if I'm going to get those guys. Come they're on, the, you they're must the two know. Big, they're the two biggest stars in the world. Yeah. I guess as opposed to anybody else, I have a pretty good chance the at best. it. But, yes. that doesn't, yeah. but, but that doesn't mean that- like, Scheduling. But, yeah, exactly. You deals. almost would have to expect that one of them's going to be on a big nine-month right. project That's at the same time. Yeah, yeah. While yeah. you're trying to get- And I'm not going to wait nine months, all right? Right. And when I have one of the guys ready to go, because I'll lose that dude. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they were a dream team. I had about like five or six different combinations of, okay, well, maybe him, maybe him. But they actually had to be genuine combinations because the guy had to be the other guy's stunt double. No, yeah. no, no, no. So they had well, to, there had to be a symmetry to them. The guy had to be able to double for the other dude. Yes, yes. Okay, in Making Inglorious Bastards, had you met Duffy? Duffy who? You haven't. Uh-huh. So I'm wrong. What I thought watching that movie mm -hmm. is Brad has a cliff. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Duffy, who was a Navy SEAL oh, uh -huh. in real life, a bad motherfucker who's been his trainer forever. Oh, really? And they're best buddies. I don't think I, I ever met Duffy. Okay, so if I was interviewing Brad right now, I'm almost certain he's playing Duffy because mm -hmm. he is fucking <laughs> Duffy. He's uh -huh. stoic, he's fearless, he's all these well, things. Well, the thing is, he probably had a Duffy going on, but one of Brad's heroes, who he was also like channeling, 
is Steve McQueen's guy. I'm spacing on it right now. Right. But he's the guy who actually did the motorcycle jump in Great Escape. Yes. It's Steve McQueen's dude. Okay, okay, you that know? makes sense. And so he, he knows all about him. He has pictures of him and McQueen hanging out yeah. with their shirts off. Oh. <laughs> Isn't it a, Brad Pitt wants to be somebody else? Y- yes. That is insane. Well, in the, in the, well, that was the thing. In the book, I talk about the idea that he's watching Mannix, and then it says there that Cliff, like, Cliff would like to be Max. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. When you came up with that archetype, who were you thinking? Because I was also thinking very much of Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham. I never thought of those guys okay. for two main reasons. One, <laughs> Rick wishes he was Burt Reynolds in 1969. Well, true, If he true. was okay, Burt Reynolds yeah, yeah. in 1969, he has no problems. That's true. As That's far true. as he's concerned. And Hal Needham was like the biggest stuntman in the world. Cliff is so fucking fringe. Well, <laughs> Well, he's pot committed. He's, yeah, he's like, all in on well, he's, it. It was funny because actually I talked to Buddy Joe Hooker about it and he goes, no, we've all known that stunt man yeah. where he's done enough to officially be legit. Right. right. <laughs> but not enough to take him to the next step in the career. Yeah. Hal Needham is not going to put him in lead wagon mm. on a $300,000 <laughs> stampede shot. <laughs> but usually, like, they make friends with some TV actor yeah, and yeah. they're their double for the time that they're popular. Yeah. But then something, they have a falling out usually. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Something goes sideways after a night of drinking. So I did have a guy, an actor told me about this one stuntman and I found him fascinating. I found the idea of this guy fascinating. <laughs> and I won't say his name, but I, I would bring his name up to old timers and go, oh yeah, him. Uh-huh. And the thing about this guy was, he was very unassuming but apparently he was like the baddest ass in the world. He had two combinations. One, he was the baddest ass in the world and he was absolutely positively indestructible. He couldn't be hurt. Right, right. He would do nine stair falls that would, any three of them, two of them would put you in a hospital and he could get up and do it 12 more times. Uh He just could not be hurt. So I remember the guy who told me about him, I asked him, I go, Okay, so now, if your guy fought Bruce Lee, who would win? And he goes, oh, well, my guy would win. He'd he'd be Bruce Lee. He goes, my guy didn't know any martial arts or anything like that. What would happen is Bruce Lee would do all of his stuff to him, and he wouldn't be able to hurt him. Sure. And then when Bruce Lee got tired, that's when my guy would fuck him up. (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, every time you bring up a scene, I'm like, yeah, that's my favorite scene in the movie. The dog food, I was like, yeah, that's my favorite scene in the movie. And now the Bruce Lee thing. I mean, that one I was so excited about. And I love Bruce Lee as a kid. What a fucking, I mean, he's a Baryshnikov or something, right? (laughs) But I don't think in the octagon he makes it past any round. Did that feel sacrilegious, especially because you love kung fu movies? Bruce Lee was a fantastic athlete. And I I do think he was a fantastic martial artist, especially in demonstration tournament Mm -hmm. style fighting. I don't think he would beat Jerry Quarry in a real fight. But I'll tell you especially why. He's a fucking actor. (laughs) He's an actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's not fighting (laughs) Ali with a broken jaw for five rounds. (laughs) 
Right, right. Okay, he gets a loose tooth. The fight's over. Yeah, we're talking about like who could beat up Humphrey Bogart. And you're like, yeah. He's the fucking <laughs> actors. Once their face starts getting fucked up, the fight is over. Okay, okay, okay. Stop, stop, stop. What the fuck, man? Yeah, this is my livelihood. <laughs> I do actually think he was a phenomenal athlete. And I agree with you. I think he had a Nuriev-like ability. Mm. Especially, like, he had that thing that Nuriev had where- Wait, what's Nuriev? Oh, Rudolf Nuriev, ballet. Oh, guy. okay, okay. Before- I exhausted my ballet references okay. with Bershikov. Bershikov is your one and only. That's it. Okay, <laughs> the, before, okay, the guy just before. <laughs> okay, okay, And before okay. that, there was Nijinsky. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he had that thing that Nuriev had where it's like he seemingly could make a leap in the air and stay up as long as he wanted and then right. softly land like a cat as he decided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm just, now that you're saying that, I just want to ask you, is Jackie Chan the most amazing stunt guy to ever live? Do you geek out on, oh, I yeah. just have been showing my kids his oh, movies. Yeah, yeah. He comes from the tradition of Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. Oh, totally. My other favorite person is Buster Keaton. Now, you know the thing about Harold Lloyd, all the stuff he was able to do, he was doing it with only half a hand. Oh, really? He blew off this much of his hand. Okay. On the clock tower, he's- Yeah, on the clock tower. He has a hand prosthetic. Oh. Because he was holding a prop bomb <gasps> for a photo, and it ended up being a real bomb, and oh. it exploded in his hand and blew- <laughs> Oh, my God. And literally, it, like, it blew like three fingers in this little section oh. of the handoff. And so every time he did movies, he had to put on a thing. Oh, my also, God. they thought it was a fake bomb, but there was a real bomb. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Like, how, did, how could that possibly <laughs> right. happen? And, like, we're talking about the 20s, so it's probably a black round ball <laughs> with a big fuse that says bomb on it. I mean, yeah, 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 real. From what? Acme. <laughs> oh, my God. X, 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 X. Well, thought I read Hal Needham's book. I'm obsessed with Hal Needham, and I watch this great show about him talking about the stunt. In, oh, you would know. Use cars, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trains going by, and there's one empty low boy train. Mm -hmm. A big, huge dually truck just jumps over it. Right? It times perfectly, right? And when they're asking Hal about that stunt, and he goes, well, you know, it was one of those stunts that we thought we're either going to be high-fiving at the end of this or we're going to be walking low with our heads down at the funeral tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> and it was like just that kind of cut. Oh, I got to tell you one of the funniest things that you could ever have happen. When they started doing the Academy Awards where they give the special Life Achievement Oscars in a separate ceremony, and I go to it one year, and it turns out that Hal Needham is, is getting an award. And they asked me to speak about him, and so I did. Yeah, you love him, obviously. I've always got a kick out of his movies. And I look, I agree with it. I think Smokey and the Bandit is actually one of the most entertaining movies ever made. Ever made. And you know, it's like 30 page outline for yeah, that yeah. movie. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things about it is, other than like the charm of Burt Reynolds and Sally Field and all that, I don't know why it's so charming. I mean, other than them, yeah. I don't know why it's it's so disarming. But it's one of those movies where, like, every time you commit to watching it, when it's over, like, wow, that was a good time. Yes. Wow, I'm sad it's over. I like writing reviews. I cannot write a review for that movie because I can't even remotely get, there's an alchemy to it. There's a yes. moment in time aspect to it that makes it so incredibly enjoyable. Yes. That is undefinable. Oh my God. Okay, Achievement Award. Okay, sorry, so sorry. the thing yeah. <laughs> So the thing is, I'm there and I do a little talk and then the producer, Albert Ruddy, who also produced uh, The Godfather and he produced The Longest Yard, he produced a couple movies with Hal Needham. And so he's telling a story 
about Hal Newman? And he goes, well, I remember when we were doing Megaforce and he starts telling this long story. I'm like, oh my God, he's talking seriously about <laughs> Megaforce yes. at an academy function. <laughs> and there's no humor about it. He's talking seriously. And then he tells another story about Megaforce. <laughs> and then he tells a third story about Megaforce. I go, this is the greatest Academy Award night ever. Megaforce, which we called Mega Farce, is getting this much attention yeah. with all the big people in the world. Yeah. Sitting Just there in the room. Having to treat it seriously. Yeah. Most blue collar director probably to ever have any success. I would say that yes and no. I mean, he was the pinnacle of his profession. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, though. There is this aspect about the idea that stunt guys are in it for the stunts. It's almost kind of like, as I don't think this is the case anymore. The stunt guys today are really more cinema literate and they're really out to make the best movie. And But there, in his day, they were coming more from a daredevil perspective. They liked Westerns, they liked this, they liked that, but they weren't so completely connected to the movie, they were into doing the stunts. They were into living this wild life that they had. They yeah. were into getting work. They were into making the money to mm -hmm. do the wild life and to have the adventures. I have to tell you just really quickly. So I did a movie with Burt Reynolds. I became friends with him. And he told me Hal Needham's story. And I want to tell it to you because I can't imagine you've heard it. But they lived together. This was a period where they lived together. And Burt came home from work and Hal was on the couch and he said, Bert, I need you to take me to the hospital. And he said, uh, why? He said, I broke my back today at work. I don't want anyone to know. And Bert goes, well, I don't think you, you broke your back. You wouldn't be able to like walk home and all that. And he's like, Bert, I broke my back. Take me to the hospital. So he takes him to the hospital in Santa Monica there. And a nurse comes in. I guess Hale's pretty flirty with the nurse, according to Bert. Then the doctor comes in. And according to Bert, the doctor's picking up on the fact that he's flirting with the nurse. And the doctor doesn't really like that. Now, Bert's theory is they had a thing going. Who knows? Point is, they give him an x-ray. And they discover he has broke his back. And additionally, there is a lot of fluid that is accumulated in his lungs. And the doctor says, I'm going to have to take the fluid out of your lungs with this needle. Lean against the wall. And Hal is in one of those gowns. And he asks the nurse to stabilize his legs. So when he puts the needle in, in case he loses his balance, have you heard the story? No. Bert said he plunged this like six inch needle into his back, into his lungs, and Hal immediately <laughs> shit on the nurse. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, in all the directions I thought this story was going, because he takes a good 20 minutes to tell yeah. it. And I'm, I'm, like, thinking, you, I'm thinking erections. Yeah, I'm yes! thinking he's going to come. Yeah, sure. I, all those things were red herrings about the <laughs> I was writing it myself. <laughs> I know. I, when he hit that punchline at this dinner, I go, I am so sorry. This whole story was leading up to someone shitting on someone's story. This is incredible. Oh. I pray it's true, not for the nurse, but yeah. for us. I had a situation where a stunt person on my movie broke their back and didn't know they broke it until years later. And I can tell you exactly what shot it was. It was Monica Staggs, who was doubling for Daryl Hannah okay. in Kill Bill. So you know the shot when she opens up the trailer door and the bride comes in and just pile drives her, just jumps yes. right into her chest, knocks her back into the stereo cabinet? Yes. Okay, well, that was Zoe Bell. Uh -huh. as the bride coming in. And there was a stunt woman, a terrific stunt woman named Monica Staggs who was playing Daryl. She broke her back. No kidding. But she didn't know it. Yeah. And it was about a year later or so, she was doing something and then she got an, an X-ray and the doctor goes, so when did you break your back? 
And she goes, uh, I didn't break my back. Oh, yes, you have. You broke your back. And there was evidence of it having yeah, healed. Oh, yeah, it was right. Yeah, it oh healed, but it was right oh in, the, in the x-ray. And she knew exactly when it was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Like, no matter how hurt they are, they will not say it on set. Yeah, yeah, they uh. just refuse to <sighs> say it. I broke my wrist doing a stunt. And the stunt coordinator is like, you didn't, you didn't break your wrist. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't say that. Or you'll never be able to do a stunt again in something if you want to. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there's a code. Yeah, yeah. So what made you get into movies? I mean, I know that's like like the most generic question ever, but I know you're like a movie connoisseur mm -hmm. as a viewer. Mm -hmm. So were you just young? Well, my question would be like on that question, what emotional thing was it doing for you? Were you lonely? Was it an escape? Was well, it I guess I was a little lonely, not in a pathetic way, but in an only child kind of way. I didn't have anybody else in the house. And also- my parents were working a lot. So I was kind of left by myself or with babysitters for a long period of time. But the thing about it, I really loved it and, and became a movie expert and that became how I defined myself. But at the beginning, it was just like the way any kid is attracted to baseball, you're attracted to sports, boys like cars. I like movies. Yeah. That yeah. was my thing. Somebody else, it would be football. Somebody else would be, they're drawing pictures of cars all the time and yeah, they yeah. Have, take, buy car magazines and put car stuff on their walls. Me, yeah. You know, I was about movies. I remember like a, my mom was dating a football player and he goes, so about your son, does he like football? He goes, well, he likes movies. <laughs> <laughs> he likes movies about yeah, football. Yeah, if you want to, he likes football movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, another Bert thing, and this relates to you, is Bert told me this story where he did punch out a director. You probably know what director yeah, yeah. it is. Dick Richards. Okay, and then he got sued, and he had to pay out quite a bit. I forget what the number was, but in the hundreds of thousands. And again, he tells his whole long story, and then I had to pay thing. And then his punchline is, it was worth every penny. Yeah. Like basically he's saying he would do it again and again. Yeah, yeah. I heard a story about that, that knowing how set protocol is, I can't imagine it's true. Uh-huh. And you've been on sets, you can't imagine this is true. But apparently what happened was after he punched him out, he punched him, he knocked him out. Not only did the crew not go crazy? Uh -huh. Not only was there like, oh my God, da, 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 call the ambulance, da, 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 da. Not only was there not that. Uh -huh. Not only were there not producers flipping the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently somebody took a piece of chalk and as he laid out on the set floor, drew a chalk outline around him and just left him there. He must have been really loved <laughs> as a director. I mean, but like knowing how a set works, I can't even imagine that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, the minute people start getting angry at each other and raise voices, people are like, whoa, 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 oh, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. So likewise, Monica, I don't know if you know this, but Quentin famously punched a producer oh, over some bad I, I blood at a, at a restaurant. Yes. And I didn't know this was the outcome of this until today, and it made me laugh for about five minutes straight. So this person who Quentin punched sued him for $5 million. Mm -hmm. And can you say what he was awarded in court? I hope uh, this number's true. Uh, 30000 Oh, it's totally wrong. This said $450, and I was oh. going to say, that's not even... <laughs> 
like one thousandth of a percent of what he was after. Still though, thirty, 30 grand. Thirty still, Okay, yeah. so in a Burt Reynolds way, wor- worth every penny. Oh yeah, that was absolutely, especially that guy. It was absolutely worth every penny. But I've actually seen him since then, and, and actually we all got it out of our system. Oh, you actually, did. Going through the whole arbitration process actually did purge. It, yeah, it was cathartic. It, yeah, it was cathartic. But the thing about it though, basically, is. If you're famous and you have money and you punch some guy, it, it doesn't even matter if it's your fault or not, you're going to pay 30000 That's pretty much the going rate? That's the going rate. Okay. Now, if it really is your fault and you are seen to be a bully or seen to be the, the, aggressor. the aggressor in this situation and you have no really good reason why you did this, yeah, then it could be who knows. Right. You could even go to jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have two more questions and we're gonna talk exclusively about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book, and I'm sorry, I'm so grateful to have you. This is, uh, again, 30 years of, of my fantasy coming true, so I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, reining myself in. Arclight Cinerama Dome, this is the most horrendous thing, yeah? I don't think it's gonna be as bad as that because they're not gonna demolish the Cinerama Dome. Somebody's going to buy it. There's so many different options that could work out and mm-hmm. I'm not that worried about it, okay. frankly, to tell you the truth. Okay, that's good. Now, movies versus shows right now. I didn't think I would ever in my life say this, but if I had to give movies in general a grade over the last two years versus shows, there's no comparison for me currently. There just isn't that many great movies, and there's fucking a boatload of unbelievable shows. Well, I would say I know what you mean, but I wouldn't quite go there. And I'll tell you what I mean by that is, yes, there are stories that you can get caught up into. Big time, yeah. And you can get caught up in the stories and you can get caught up in the fact that they're not stuck to a two hour, two and a half hour format. So you really get kind of get to know the characters and this thing can zing off here and zing off there if you're watching The Americans or you're watching Billions or whatever you're watching. It's still TV. They still have a TV budget. They still have a TV shooting schedule. Yes, I could have done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a miniseries. Right. And I could have shot everything I ever wanted mm-hmm. for that miniseries. And that would have been fantastic. And say I even had the same budget, which was $95 million. That's a good budget. Mm-hmm. That's a great budget. Mm-hmm. Still could be $95 million stretched Ten for ways. eight hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. As opposed to $95 million stretched to two and a half hours. Yes. So if I need seven days to do a sequence, I have seven days. If I need two weeks to do a sequence, yes. I have two weeks. A TV director is not gonna have that. They have to make too much product. They have to shoot too much material. Now, if it's just about getting the material shot, great. Yeah. But you're not gonna have the sense of- Scope and grandeur. Yeah, you're not gonna have that kind of time. Yeah. Although there are a couple that pop into my mind that are like a little bit of exceptions where it's like the quality is fucking bad. Well, there. one of the anomalies would be something like, not that I ever watched it, but we Game of Thrones. Yeah, they yeah. had the time and they would spend three weeks on a battle scene. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah they would shoot for 11 months. Yeah, and- exactly. But really that and Band of Brothers and after that, forget about it. Nothing else really has that kind of scale. Yeah, but just to counter that, you also then have like Fargo. Do you watch Fargo, the TV show? No, I don't actually. Okay. Unbelievable. And when you're watching it, you're like, how are they making something this good for $3 million an episode? Okay, but again, it's probably script-based. 
Yeah, it's phenomenally written. Yeah, yeah. it's script-based. Well, yeah. script-based you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about scenes of people talking to each other and uh -huh. dialogue scenes, yeah. and I'm not putting that down. Obviously, I'm not putting dialogue scenes down. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, you can do that. Mm -hmm. That's doable. That has come now where mm -hmm. that is our outlet for it because in general, and I'm not one that's always hating on Marvel stuff, I'm not, but a scene that's six pages long that's all dialogue, you're not seeing that in a script unless you go make a movie. It's pretty mm -hmm. much not happening in movies, so it's only happening on TV, and that was my favorite part of movies. No, 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 that's genuine. I'm sure you watch much more television than I do, mm -hmm. but of all the limited series that I've watched, and I've heard other people say this, so I don't think I was just the only one. I've heard a lot of people say this. The only one that actually felt like a movie, it was just a seven-hour movie, was The Queen's Gambit. Oh, oh my God. So Wasn't good. that fucking great? But that was not a TV series. That was just a seven-hour movie. Or did oh, okay. it seem like yeah, a TV no, series to No, you? I agree. I agree. It did mm -hmm. feel just like a full A to Z movie. It was a movie, yeah. It yeah. just felt like a movie. You're right. Yeah. Okay. I was going to propose The Great is for me that way as well. Have you Which seen one? The, the Great on Hulu? It's about Catherine the Great. Oh, okay. Uh -huh, but it's uh -huh. a satire. Mm, it's oh, got uh -huh. the craziest tone. I fucking love it. And then the other one I would say is The Patriot. Did you see that show on Amazon? Okay. If it's on Amazon and Hulu, I yeah, haven't yeah. seen it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're not a big streamer. I'm not a big streamer. Okay, everyone knows this. You famously said you're going to do 10 movies. You've done nine movies. You must believe somewhat in the simulation because you happen to pick your 10 movies in the time <laughs> where movies were still thriving and awesome. Uh, and I don't know that one, even with your talent, could go make 10 movies going forward. I'm just yeah, not sure. Yeah. It's no, like, I, I, what a timeline you picked for Oh, this. I know. It, there was this aspect about 2019. It was like, whoa. Were we the last movies to fly through the window before the window was slammed shut for all time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even if movies come back, will it be like that? I know. No. You're one of like three people that can get something made yeah. that isn't a part of no, some IP. Will that world even exist anymore? One of the things that Tom Rothman always said about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's like, look, we're Sony. Yeah, we have our own Marvel stuff, but we don't have the Marvel stuff that. Disney has. Yeah. And we don't have the DC stuff that Warner Brothers has. And we don't have Harry Potter and we don't have all these different, you name the franchises. Yeah. We don't have all that. We're about asses in seats. <laughs> we're not about doing this. We're not, if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to be a success, it's because we got people to leave the house when they could do anything in the world they wanted to do that night. And they went and paid to see a movie and sat their ass in a fucking chair. Yes. And then if it's a movie's a hit there, then it'll be a hit and all the other things down the line. Mm -hmm. But we have to make it a hit at the theaters. Is a $300 million take on a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was only two years ago, is that possible in the future? I yeah. do not know. And about asses and seats. I'm not saying a movie like that can't make $300 million, but can it make it from just movie ticket sales alone? Yeah. Yeah. Not streaming, not this, not that. Yeah. yeah, and this is a valid question before 2020, and now the infrastructure's crumbled. A lot of the exhibitors are gone. Like, there's other now hurdles. Some of these exhibitors that are going, like, I never like any theater closing, but some of these exhibitors are going, well, they fucking deserve to go. They've taken all the specialness out of movies anyway. Some of these chains, mm -hmm. where they're showing commercials all through oh, it. Yeah, they don't yeah. turn the lights down. Everything is stadium seating, plastic shit. And <laughs> yeah, it's all about popcorn and it's like watching a movie of fucking Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> 
like, I mean, there used to be a, yeah, even a tad of presentation going on. Uh -huh. and yeah, like, yeah. Like, you know, so it was like, those guys shut down. They've been writing their own epitaph for a long time, but they just figured the business would take you along. I mean, it's been crazy during my whole career to see how the cinema experience is lessened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the yeah, viewer. Yeah. Like every five years, it's lessened by another big jump. However, I do think boutique cinemas will actually thrive mm. in this time. And I'm not talking about the lazy boy mm. order nachos and margaritas and-, and uh, <laughs> Six bean salad. Yes, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> roast beef. I mean, actually I like the Alamo Draft House a lot. I love the Alamo yeah, Draft House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not really down with that whole, la like I got a living room. I want to go to a movie theater. I don't want to recreate my living room mm. or in an outdoor place. I actually like feeling the audience. Yes, <laughs> not, yes. not in my own little sofa. But like, for instance, when we opened up the New Beverly about two weeks ago, in June, again, and like we've sold out every single show. Wow. Okay. Well, that's promising. And I'll announce yeah, please. one thing here that people don't know yet. I bought the Vista. Oh, this right here. Yeah, you're the Vista. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah, we're gonna probably open it up around Christmas time. Yay! Oh my god, that's fantastic and again, news. Only film. Yeah. Oh boy, oh boy. But oh boy. it won't be a revival house. Okay. It won't be a revival house. We'll show new movies mm -hmm. that come out where they give us a film print. Yeah. All right, we'll show new stuff. It's not gonna be like the New Beverly. The New Beverly has its own vibe. Sure. The Vista is like a crown jewel mm -hmm, yeah. kind of thing. And so it'll be like the best prints. And so we'll show older films, but there'll be like older films that like, you know, can hold a four-night engagement. Yeah. Well, Arclight so did that cool. in a really cool way yeah, yeah, as well. Did. Yeah, no, they did a lot of cool stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't always film. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your religion. Okay, now you're here not to talk about all the things I talked to you about, but you have now a two-book deal, and your first book of that two-book deal is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and now it's a novel. So do you take the skeleton of the movie and then just start filling in all these other areas? Do you flashback? Like, how do you approach that? I guess I vaguely take the skeleton insofar as in those two days that takes place at the beginning of the movie, it goes in that timeline. But no, I didn't just take the script and turn it into novelistic prose and then throw in a couple of scenes that were cut out of the film. I uh -huh. rethought it as a novel and I had so much material. And I'm talking about like material I shot that I didn't use. I was writing it for like five years. Uh-huh. And I wanted to really know stuff about these characters and know this world. So when I wanted to know stuff, I wrote it out. And so I wrote out little scenes to answer questions. And I wrote out things about Rick's career and I wrote out stuff. When you write those out, are they being told in dialogue? No, when they get into dialogue, it turns into like script type of dialogue. Okay. But a lot of it is very prosy. And the thing about it though was like, I mean, most of this stuff I never even bothered to type it up uh -huh. because it's never going to make the movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to have a 40-minute scene in a bar where they talk at the end of the Lancer shoot. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen in the third act of the movie. Right. All right, but I learned a lot from writing it. So I had all this material that I could put into it. And I like movie novelizations anyway. I grew up with them. They were like the first adult novels I ever read when I was a kid in the 70s were movie novelizations. And so I thought, hey, it wouldn't be cool to do one. And I go, well, my first thought was to take Reservoir Dogs and turn it into a novel. Oh, sure, sure. And I wrote sure. about two chapters of that. And then I go, well, wait a minute, what am I doing? The latest one was Once Upon a Time, and I have all this material and people seem to like it, so I mean, that really should be the one I do first. Yeah, yeah. And so I did. When you're creating characters, 
are they all fantasies of like what you'd want to do or what you'd want to be or how you'd want to act? Is it all kind of personal fantasy? Not necessarily. No. I mean, look, I think like, look, when it comes to somebody like Cliff Booth, I think every man would like to be Cliff Booth. Oh my God. Every man would like to be as capable as Cliff Booth. Every man would like to be as zen as he is in the face of every kind of confrontation and know that you can deliver to that degree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we would all like to be that. But again, it was a real guy that I was basing it on. Yeah, maybe that was the wrong way to ask it. When you're writing these things, do you get the excitement of like, oh, this would be the greatest response or this would be the greatest way to walk through this situation? Like, do you get that? Well, let me put it like this, I wish I talk the way I wrote. That's I what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I'm no, saying. I, when I write, it's as if I have the vocabulary of the ages mm -hmm. at my disposal. When I am talking, I don't have the vocabulary <laughs> of the ages. Right, right, right. I'm like everybody else. I use the same words again and again and again. <laughs> but when I'm writing and when I'm being different people and voices, turns of phrase from the 1890s are just right there yeah. for the picking. Yeah. You know, that's like, it's like, and I'm in an orchard and, and it's not words, it's more phrases. It's more expressions or slang or turns of phrase from the 1800s down are all like apples hanging off of a tree. Yeah. Yeah, and they're just coming yeah. to you, right? And I, yeah, and I'm just, okay, this one, boom, pick, yeah. boom, boom, pick, uh, pick. It's not like pick. you're trying to get the right no, sentence for 10 minutes. No, I'm not trying at all. I mean, the thing about it, look, any kind of situation where when you're particularly good at something, yeah. it's not a big deal to you because it comes too easy mm -hmm. to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I just get the characters talking and it's seemingly as if they do all of the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, the, I'm a court stenographer writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> I am so reluctant to say I relate because I am no way think I'm the writer you are, but as someone who's written many, many screenplays, mm -hmm. There are characters within the things I write where it's like, I can't wait for it to be their turn because I can yeah, just yeah. diarrhea uh, for the uh, rest of my life as this person. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And then yeah. there's a couple people where it's like, oh, I got to kind of work out what they would say. But then mm -hmm. this person and this person, these, these little touchdowns. And usually when you have to work out something that they have to say, it's because they got to tell the story. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now you got work to do. Yes, yes. <laughs> now how do I get them to do the work so it's not standing out? I so hate exposition that I bury my exposition inside of 20-minute rambling rambling scene, so you do not realize you're being told exposition. Right. You think it's just the random nothingness that they've been talking about through the whole 20 minutes. It's only 20 minutes later that you realize you had been told a plot point yes. that's gonna mean something to you later. Yeah, it's but masked. it's never, here it comes. Yeah. Right, right. But when you have like me, the luxury to have 20 minute scenes, well, yeah, you can bury shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of real estate. But the thing about it is you talk about the dog food scene. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, he just, Stop the movie for uh, about six or six <laughs> minutes to uh, watch Cliff feed his dog. But I'm also telling you how well trained Brandy is. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. And so now you're not asking, well, wait a minute. Why isn't that no. dog making a noise? Why isn't that dog whining when the Manson guys are there? Why isn't the dog, why isn't he being a dog? Yeah. Well, because you know why. Yes. Because when Cliff says, you don't fucking move. Yeah. All right, uh, he doesn't fucking move. It actually, when you're watching it, the viewer, or at least I thought, oh, you're telling me about Cliff. Like, yeah, I, yeah. this is a scene where I learn about, oh, he has this cool connection with this dog. I know guys like that. He's telling you about Brandy. 
That's the that's plot point. Right. That's, so that's, that's the work. That's the storyteller work. Yeah, but when you're watching, you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be learning about Cliff right now. Okay, oh, I see how he lives and blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then that thing. And you, oh, that's right true. By. Yes. Oh, that's yes. true. Yeah, that's just <laughs> bonus material. Yeah. Uh, I am just opposing his homestead with Rick's homestead. <laughs> <laughs> with all that said, can you think of a very favorite character whose speeches you liked writing the most? Can I guess? Go ahead. <laughs> I'd have to imagine it's a Christopher Waltz or it's a Sam Jackson. It's both. It's okay, 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 yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. Good it, job, Dad. Yes. <laughs> it would be Colonel Hans Landa or any of the Sam Jackson. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I would put a third one in there. Okay. Christopher Walken's speech in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Knowing yeah. I was writing that for Christopher yes. Walken, it was the longest speech I've ever written. It's yeah. three pages long. Yeah, yeah. I kept wow. this uncomfortable piece of metal up my ass. <laughs> be damned. <laughs> Little man. <laughs> Little man. Oh my God, what a fucking scene. Oh my God. Okay, so once upon a time in Hollywood, did it take you the similar length to write it? Is it easier to write a book for you or is it harder? Is it so liberating to write a novel where it's like, and then the fucking thing blows up and this happens and you have no obligation to figure out how to shoot that? Well, okay, I, I will tell you one of the things that was really great about it was knowing that when I was done with the novel, I was done. Yes, yes. That was fucking mind-blowing <laughs> yeah <laughs> to know that oh i'm i'm done now all right i'm not gonna spend the next year and a half of my life shooting this just being completed oh wow this is it i'm finished yeah that was awesome but at the same time it was also a situation where i'd never really written a novel before and mm -hmm. it was a new style of writing so i had to get used to that and it was a lot of fun but to me scripts are really easy Whoa. to write so this wasn't Easy. It, I'm not saying it was crazy hard, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, it's not the format your brain thinks in. Yeah, you know, it had to be more literary. It had to be you know, it had to be more a lot of things. You can get away with a lot of stuff in scripts. I mean, you can literally just interior bar. Bob and Ted are at the table. Boom, <laughs> and right into it. You know. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of okay on a script. Yeah, especially if Tim Ross starts talking <laughs> immediately. So what we must discuss before you leave is Fred Raskin, mm -hmm. your editor. Yeah, yeah, Fred. Who's a friend of mine? He edited a, the first movie I directed. Oh, he was shit. one of the editors on, and oh, I just yeah. fell in love with him. And he loves Stern, as mm -hmm. we know. And you were kind enough to bring him up on Stern, which yeah, I yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm oh. so happy for Fred. Oh, right I know. Now. I was so I was so happy for Fred. <laughs> yes, yes. I and just, then even when like how cool Howard was, because I brought him up and he's like, Hello, Fred. Oh my God. <laughs> he gave him a shout out. So yeah. Fred is is spectacular. Really oddly, we just we're talking, I guess Vincent D'Onofrio, we we it just came up. When we were talking about how women have had a better role editorially than they have in the rest of the business historically. Like there's there's some magic, I guess, Scorsese and his editor. And then you and Sally, Sally yeah. obviously had some just beautiful thing. Yeah. And when she died so unfortunately, I wonder creatively if, did you have any panic just to have done everything with her and to have the relationship you guys had? I didn't have panic, but I know it's worth doing, but it was like, oh, wow, this is never going to be the same again. Yeah. And will it ever be this fun again? It was just heartbreaking. Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, if I talk about too much, I'm going to start crying yeah, because yeah. it's like, yeah, it's, we had a whole ritual and the idea that that ritual will never, ever happen again is really, really tough. And then there was also just 
another layer. It was like, while me and Sally were these magnificent partners, and while we were really great friends, and we were these really great artistic collaborations, I considered Sally like the greatest artistic collaborator I've ever had. It was almost like she was a co-writer to some degree, because editing is like the last draft. Yeah, yeah. I always say that a script is the first cut of the movie uh-huh. and the edit is the last draft of the script. Yeah. And then and, and we literally sat next to each other yeah. all day long, mm-hmm. right, connected right to each other. But there was another aspect about it was she was almost like my mother. Mm-hmm. She was a motherly figure. And she, she was safety. And she was a great mother and she has that kind of spirit and she was just old enough and I was just young enough to have that energy, and especially yeah. as time went on, but even right from the very beginning. So it was like, I had my mother as my greatest artistic yeah. collaborator. Yeah. And she loved me like a mother. She was fierce. Uh, she was crazy. She was as protective as a lioness uh-huh. about our movies and about me. Yeah. And so like to lose all of that, which I thought would be there to the end of time. Sure. Yeah. 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 Oof. Mm. Do you think having had dudes coming in and out of your life as a kid. I personally have a hard time hearing criticism, anything from men. Fucking can't stand it. Women I can take it from. I trust them. I feel safe with them. I almost wonder, could you have even had that relationship right out of the gate with a male editor? No, I could have it now. Now? Well, you have it with Fred. Yeah, I have it with Fred. I have it with Fred. But I could even have it with like an older man. Mm -hmm. But when you're young. I didn't want to deal with a man at all. In fact, the only thing I knew was I wanted a female editor. Yeah. Because they're gonna know more about editing, especially on my very first movie than I'm gonna know, but I know more about my story. Yeah. But the thing about it was, I didn't want anyone playing it. Like, Let me tell you how it is, kid. Right. I didn't want that. I wanted somebody who would nurture me. Yes. I wanted somebody who would take care of me and bring me through this process yeah. and bring the best out of me. Not try to win arguments, but bring the best out of me. Yeah. And I wanted somebody to take care of me. Yes. Well, and maybe you feel differently, but also when you go away and you shoot a movie, you're so in the experience Mm. of shooting it. And then you go to this little room Mm. and the weight of like, well, I got to turn that into something. Mm. I find that scary. I think that's the scariest part because you got what you got. And now let's see if you can put it together in a way you imagined it. I'm always having a blast at editing. You're not depressed when you see a first assembly? I don't watch... First assemblies. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> I've had some of the worst days of my entire life with seeing assembly. Oh, no. like, oh I no. got to call people and say, sorry, I took your money. No, 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 no. No, I would never watch a first assembly. And look, I'm not telling Sally or Fred much of anything during the shoot. Okay. Maybe we watch dailies together for the first three weeks. But now, okay, I can't keep watching the footage. Like, it um, makes me want to edit. And uh, like, like, I'm here. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Yeah. So to me, the first assembly is simply them getting familiar with the footage. They have notes they have from the first AD is, oh, Quentin like this take, Quentin like that yeah, take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was his favorite. But I'm not sitting there talking, okay, so I'm thinking that we start here and then we do this and then let's hop the line over here and ba 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 ba. No, just have at it. Do whatever the hell you want. And that's them getting familiar with the footage as I am. And so then when we start editing, we start, okay, scene one, here we go, boom. We start with scene one and uh, I've made my notes for what I wanna do. Okay, so Fred, let's see what you did. So I watched the assembly of that scene. Yes, okay, great. Just before we start. So you don't go all the way through and then go, oh, here's the global notes. You just start scene by scene, get the scenes right and then watch it for global thoughts? See, I watch all the footage 
I mean, all the takes for that given scene the right. night before. Oh, uh, okay. And I make all my notes. Yeah, yeah. About everything, I, and, and then, then I get, from watching the takes that work and the takes that don't work, mm-hmm. I start building a structure yeah. to how I wanna put it together. Sometimes it doesn't work, but most of the time it does. And I never look at the notes to see, well, no, I don't wanna know what I thought was great on that day. I wanna know what I think is great now. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and uh, well, it means you're looking at a lot of fucking shit. And so I'm working all night long, making all these notes, and like every time so-and-so says this line, good. Well, then I write it down. Yeah. So now I know exactly what I want to do when I show up at editing the next day. But we start, okay, let me see what you did, Fred. Great, yeah. He, and then I see what he did. And if he did something better, if he had, maybe he had a neat idea that I didn't think about. Yeah. And oftentimes, like the little cuts of the inserts are like fantastic the way they do it. That's like, oh, that's yeah. really great. And, and and I can, oh, you know, okay, let's see. See, I was going to do this and this and this. I think I still want to do this and this and this, but let's end it the way you did. I like that ending. Yeah, I like yeah. that's a good ending. Let's let's end it that way. Yeah. If you had to guess an average of how many takes you do, could you say? Is there an average? Uh, it's usually around six, seven, or eight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes four, sometimes yeah. three. And then your second book is going to be nonfiction yeah, uh-huh. about movies, yeah? It's a cinema book yeah, that yeah. I'm writing. It's, I think I assume it's going to be called Cinema Speculation. And the idea of it is the whole concept of New Hollywood, more or less starting in 1967. And I think I consider the end of it officially like 1981. Okay. But that means that I grew up going to the movies during that time. I mean, I remember going to see movies in 1967. I mean, I'm four, but I remember going to see Bullet. Right, right. I saw Planet of the Apes at the theaters in 1968. I saw- You probably saw Smokey and the Bandit in the theater. Yeah, oh yeah, of course I did. I've only seen it on TV. Yeah, of course I saw it. I saw it the weekend it opened. That's something you would do in your time machine. Oh, I would. I'd go to fucking Friday night. No, I saw it at the the Hawthorne Six. No shit. (laughs) AMC Hawthorne Six. I can remember every theater I've ever seen any movie. Wow, that's amazing. And then I just choose a few movies from that span of years. Yeah. And I write reviews about them, about like what I think about them. I usually give a, a lot of history about it and what I think about them, but I also have had to have seen them then. Yeah, so yeah, I also yeah. talk about how my perspective, either what it was then or how it's changed, or maybe it's the same. You now have two kids. One kid. Oh, you have one kid. One kid. Yeah. Okay, you have one kid. How old? 15 months. Oh, Jesus. Aww. Okay, you're not there yet. I want to interview you in seven years because mm-hmm. I'm now at a phase of my life where I'm showing my kids. Oh, I can't wait for that. Oh, well, sometimes it's fucking great. It's everything you'd want it to be. And other times, this is a specific oh, example. Oh, totally. They're going to totally like shit on something you fucking <laughs> oh, love. More yeah. than that, let me tell you, I showed my eight-year-old daughter and six-year-old. They were probably seven and five then. I showed them Pee Wee Herman. Uh-huh. I'm like, I fucking love Pee Wee Herman. I was mm-hmm. their age when they showed I put this movie Did you show on- them the movie or did you show them Pee Wee's Playhouse? I showed them the movie. You got to show them the kids show. Yeah, you, you were wrong. You start off with a fucking narrative. No, you show the show that was shown on Saturday morning. You show them an episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's a kid show. That was show. second, though, wasn't it? No. Chronologically, the Playhouse was first. Yes. Oh my god. The movie. You don't show them a fucking movie right. at that age. You show them the. All right, I, sh- I, I shit the bed, but let me just tell you <laughs> their experience watching it. A, they were terrified. Yes! Because you know, it's Tim Burton. Yeah. Oh, they didn't get Large Marge. Oh, wow. That's 
your so, five-year-old little girl didn't understand but, Large no, Marge. But let's also get more <laughs> conceptually, they asked me a question that I had never asked myself at eight years old, and I didn't have an answer for it, which is they were like, is he a kid or an adult? And I'm like... I don't great, know. Great question. I don't know yeah, if he's yeah. a kid or an adult. He's, and if he's an adult, yeah. then that opens up more questions. Like, what's wrong with well, him? Well, he's, <laughs> he's a Jerry Lewis, Lou Costello child adult. <laughs> it's unanswerable. Yeah, I can't wait for you to yeah. show your child, <laughs> Pee Wee Herman. Well, again, I would do it the right way. I would start with him. <laughs> and maybe show him. HR puffing stuff and lead up to Pee-wee's maybe even Playhouse. get some footage of him at uh, yeah, at the yeah. Groundlings fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. doing <laughs> that character for the first Workshopping time. Workshopping the character. I've actually watched at 15 months. I've actually watched my first movie. Oh God, what was it? With my son Leo. So he watches like normal baby TV stuff. Like the show that he really likes is this thing called Sam the Fireman. But the thing is, like, they're made for toddler. They're made for yeah, infants. Yeah, yeah. So they're all about, like, 15 minutes long. And they have, like, and then there's a familiarity about them. And, you know, and that's, you know, 15 minutes is about as long as you can hold a kid yeah. at that age. So I try not to go on Netflix, but I went on Netflix. And I was like, let me find something better for kids to watch with him. What a hilarious moral conundrum that he has to not watch Netflix. Yeah. It's very funny. <laughs> very unique. <laughs> And so I see the minions up there. So I think, oh, okay, well, this will be good. He might enjoy the minions. Yeah. So I hit it and I realize, oh, no, it's not the minions. It's, it's Despicable Me too. Mm. All right. And I go, well, I wasn't going to choose a movie. All right. But um, he seems to be watching the opening credits. So he knows what opening and closing credits are because that let, lets them know it's starting and lets them know it's over. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's just see how this goes. And so, like, it starts with this crazy big action scene. And... He was really into it. Uh-huh, sure. He was really into it. He's not clapping or smiling or, or, or laughing, but he's just like watching mesmerized yeah. with like the mouth open. <laughs> so he was watching that and I'm studying his face and this may be me reading. <laughs> projecting a projecting little bit. <laughs> the, yeah, projecting. This may be me projecting what he was thinking. Because <laughs> I watched his face when he watches these other shows because I'm fascinated by him taking in yes. entertainment and the fact that he likes it. And what does he like and what does he not like? What is he attracted to? And how he watches it. And the look of wonder on his face, it did look like he was recognizing oh, wow, this is much better than the stuff that I watch normally. <laughs> right, oh, right, wow. right. This is much more sophisticated, <laughs> even though he doesn't know what the word sophisticated means. Yes. It's much more sophisticated. It's much better done. This is like, I mean, this is something. Yes. I would imagine like from my age, it's like, okay, you're a little kid and you're watching Lost in Space. Mm. Then you see 2001. Okay, there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, 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 So the thing is, we watched it for about, 25, almost 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is an incredible <laughs> yeah, amount yeah. of time. Yeah. It's a percentage of his life at uh, yeah, yeah. months. For a 15-month <laughs> deal. And the shows that he likes, he sees the same episodes again and again. Yeah. And I, he, I think that's annoying, but he, uh, he obviously likes that. <laughs> yeah. All right, because oh, it's comfortable. I know what this is going. This is a pizza episode of Sam the Fireman, even though he doesn't know what a pizza is. <laughs> yeah. So when he finally, the spell was broken and he started doing something else, like two days later, when I was hanging out with him, I moved the film back about five minutes from where he last watched it, and we watched it for like another 15 minutes. Yeah. 
15, 20 minutes or so. And then a few days later, I picked it up again and I took about five minutes back and we watched it for like another 15 minutes until we eventually saw the whole movie. Yes. So. Isn't that wonderful? I will always now know the first movie my son ever watched was Despicable Me 2. On Netflix. I try to ignore that aspect of it. <laughs> it would have rather be a Blu-ray, but you can't have everything. All right? Exactly. <laughs> Don't emphasize that part. I'm sorry, I had to, I had to. <laughs> the best analogy would be like, you basically own the small town hardware store and you ordered some shit off Amazon and you just <laughs> fucking true. had to do it. I just, <laughs> yeah. I needed the nail gun tonight. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, Quentin, it's been such a pleasure and fred raskin we love you yes yeah. he listens so thank you fred. <laughs> thank you for it yeah thank you so much for coming yeah, in i really pleasure. appreciate it you guys yeah. were great this was really fun i think about as long as one of your movies too yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not quite not quite <laughs> we'll do volume two <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. all right thanks so much and now my favorite part of the show the fact check with my soulmate monica padman Hello. You are really dressed to the nines for this fact check. Thank you. Can we just acknowledge that? It wasn't for the fact check. Let's be uh, honest and open like we always are. Okay. Yeah, we're in the middle of a <laughs> televised interview. That's right. Currently. C- literally real time. <laughs> and we're pretending to do a fact check, but guess what? We're not pretending. We're really doing one. <laughs> Welcome to the layers of our world. This is very meta. Rob, can you give me a little more? Give her a little, more, give, a little more Dak. Give her a little, a little heat. A little more me. Yeah, a little Please. more me. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, that's Ooh. nice. I like your sweater. You're very autumnal. Do you want to tell people about your new autumnal wardrobe? Yeah, so on the game show, Nicole Chavez, who is the most incredible stylist in the she world. She styled my clothes right this second. That was no mystery to me. I mean, not that you couldn't have done this yourself, but Thank that's you. got Nicole written all over it as well. She's so talented, and I think she, more she decided, you're going autumnal, you're going pink, you're going salmon, and by George, I loved every item of it. Yeah. I would never go into a store and be drawn to the salmon section, and especially not in a food store, because I don't like fish. Well, yeah, maybe that's why you're tying it in with the fish. Yeah, conflating the color with We the, know you don't like fish cooked in the, the house. No, no, it's, it should never be prepared indoors. <laughs> that's the rule about There was another fish dish that... Fish dish. Oh, fish dish. <laughs> that I saw recently that I, I think I want to try. Oh, gosh. Indoors. Yeah. What is it, a catfish? No. What a, uh, it was a, I think it was a halibut. halibut. Oh, yeah. sure. A sturgeon, a halibut. A halibut is very light to the nose. <laughs> this is the sales pitch of every fish. It doesn't taste like fish and it doesn't smell like fish, which always begs the question for me, then why not eat something else? <laughs> no, because it's healthy. But if the best thing about the item could be that it doesn't resemble the item, that's a weird item. Right? People be like, you don't like fish? Try swordfish. It tastes just like steak. And I'm like, is is there an embargo on steak? Why not go right to It's healthier than steak. So say some. So say some. So say me. You know that old saying, so say some. Anywho, autumnal. So, Mm. So you made your way to the salmon section. Yeah, I guess, you know, this part of maybe growing up in the metropolitan Detroit area only black folks wore pink these colors that's because it looks so beautiful on the yes skin. yeah like i remember arsenio hall you'd watch arsenio hall and the color suits that he would wear versus like letterman or leonard or all these people 
there's just so many colors that look great on black folks. Well, and, and I, I, it felt I think like it wasn't just, my domain. They were just cooler and more willing to like play yeah. in the in the clothing department. Yeah. Higher on the soul spectrum. At any rate, here we are. I'm and in a mustard. Not Yeah, you're in a mustard today. You had a raspberry sweater. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> really took my breath away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode. Oh, my gosh. Unreal. I, I was telling you the other day, I was saying, man, you did a really good job being cool. Like, you told him that he was. My idol. Your number one. But. You played it cool. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Yeah. That was a Saturday. Mm -hmm. We rarely do a, a weekend interview. Yes. So we came out of here and we walked directly into the house and people were over. And I was saying for me personally, like, of course, Bill Gates, I like, I worship in a certain way. Yeah. But to have someone who actually did the thing I was trying to do yeah. felt so different. Like, yeah. I, I just left feeling like perhaps the most excited I've been about interviewing someone. Like, wow. oh my God, this person I've thought about for years, read, studied, yes. wanted to be admired in the thing I pursue. Yeah. Yeah, it was really awesome. When they have a very specific impact on your life, that's how like Amy Poehler was for me. It, it changes the level of gratitude. I was so happy that you got that opportunity. I was very worried I'd be too much for him. You weren't yeah. at all. So I'm glad to hear that you think I, I did okay. Maybe you didn't even do enough. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He told us an interesting story after, of course, about uh, Brian De Palma. Oh, right, 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 right. We were asking him kind of like, who is your I said, idol? yeah, who are you trying to be? Like, I was trying to be you. Yeah. Who are you trying to be? And I guessed, I said, is it, oh, all the spaghetti westerns, what's the guy's name? I don't know. I don't Sergio Leone. Oh, right. That's who he most, like, probably stylistically has done similar things to. But he said for him personally, Brian De Palma was the guy. He yeah. just worshipped De Palma. And after Reservoir Dogs went to Sundance and Brian De Palma's wife was there, she told De Palma, you should watch this movie. And he did. And then De Palma called him and said, let's have lunch. Yes. And it's just so funny and interesting to hear the person that you know is at the pinnacle wanting to be someone else. Yeah, everyone has heroes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe that's the appeal of like oh, being out loud about your heroes because there's a certain humility involved. And to hear him, to recognize that, oh, he has all this humility as yeah. well. And it was a ding, ding, ding because in the interview we were talking about Brad Pitt and how Brad wants to be that – Stunt guy. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. Was like, Brad Pitt wants to be somebody else. <laughs> like none of us have a chance of ever just being comfortable in our bodies. Yeah, until maybe a certain like clearly Quentin has full acceptance and acknowledgement, not in an egotistical way, but he definitely knows what the hell he did in film. Yes. You know, he is yeah. in the Cecil B. DeMille category yeah. of legendary. Ugh. But he's also really like normal and. Cool. Curious and still enthusiastic. Yeah. Not over anything. No. I wonder how you keep that alive. That's probably what separates the real legends from the not non the legends. The faux tours. Is that what it's called? Well, auteur, right, is yeah. a term for a super talented. Yeah. And they say faux tour. Oh, my God. For someone who, like, everyone what? thought was a genius and it was revealed they weren't. Rude. Mm -hmm. Oh, what is a spaghetti western? 
Why is it called that? Because they were like this huge rash of American Westerns that were shot in Italy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Sergio Leone was an Italian filmmaker making all these American Westerns. Oh, that's funny. And that's where Clint Eastwood got his start. He was in these like B-movie Westerns in Italy, but then they turned out great, like Fistful of Dollars and all these. And that's what got him into Dirty Harry and all that stuff. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Should we do some facts? Yeah. Uh, Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. As you can hear, the uh, the live section is concluding. That's right. We weren't interesting enough for them to stay <laughs> any longer. Now we're going to get real. Yeah, now we're going to talk about pooty yeah. and stinkies and, and wee-wee and woo-woo <laughs> and everything in between. Were you guys dressed like twins? Who? Oh, we both had salmon on. <gasps> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I mean, I had pink, but he was calling it salmon, and I rolled with it, of course. Oh, my God. But that was before the game show. Yeah. So you were wearing... Oh, I have been wearing pink. Oh, my You know God. that. Well, I got... My Hellcat has the pink front end and the yeah. pink... Like, I've been really embracing... I got the pink um, come and go shirts. Oh, right. Yeah, I've been, I've been really exploring pink for about two years now. I wear it a lot on Top Gear because I feel like it counteracts all the hyper-masculinity. Yeah, that's true. Okay. But Sam and I was a stranger, too. And same with most of the autumnals. I then discovered mustard with that sweatsuit I have that I wore right, in Kimmel. Sure. So I started falling in love with mustard over the last four months. Right. But it's all new. It's all really new to me. Okay. Okay. Still very exciting. Uh, for people who are wondering why he doesn't like Netflix, mm. it's mm-hmm. because he likes movies on film. In the theater. In the theater on yeah. film. Yeah. Film prints. That's why the, his new movie theater is going to be... Film, film prints. prints. Yeah. Most theaters aren't even film anymore. Correct. Well, exactly. That's why his. So he shouldn't just hate Netflix. He no, it just came up. It just yeah. came up that he didn't like Netflix. <laughs> you weren't here, Rob. Well, I also think he sees it, rightly so, as part of the reason movies are dying. Yeah. Because people are getting amazing entertainment in their living room. Yeah. Used to be, if you only had network television, you couldn't see an R-rated anything unless you went to the movie theater. True. And now, boy, it's fast and loose on all these platforms. Yeah. Okay, I know you love guessing stuff. So what would you guess is his highest grossing film ever? We're not going to adjust for inflation, obviously. (laughs) I would guess Inglorious Bastards. Django. Get the fuck out. Django Unchained, earning over $425 million worldwide. Wow. Oh, so wow. This is also worldwide, not domestic. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Do you have a full list? Yes, I do. So is Inglorious number two, and then Once Upon a Time number three, and then Pulp Fiction number four? No. Fuck. <laughs> fuck me. Number two is Once Upon a Time. Oh. $371 million dollars that's right worldwide three is inglorious bastard so you just finally finally you just had this oh my gosh oh my gosh there's a picture of bj novak i forgot he was in that Mm -hmm. so jealous four is pulp fiction there we go five is kill bill volume one six is the hateful eight seven is kill bill volume two oh that's wild a movie split Yeah, yeah very weird um eight is jackie brown Reservoir nine Dogs rounding is, out. Nine is Death Proof. Okay. And ten is Reservoir Dogs. Okay. 
I've never seen Reservoir Dogs. Would I like it? It's a play. I love plays. Yeah. There's a crime, and some mastermind is brought together like eight people. They're all strangers to each other. Mm -hmm. They all are given names that are colors. So Mr. White, Mr. Blue, Mr. Black, all that. And then it all goes horribly wrong, and they're kind of stuck in the safe house unraveling all this stuff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I bet I'd love it. And it famously starts with a long scene at a diner. Steadicam going around them as they all talk, but they're talking about what the best Madonna songs are. And they all have really solid opinions on it. And it's funny to hear the gangsters. Yeah, well, after this interview, I restarted Pulp Fiction because I hadn't Mm. seen it in so long. So I rented it that night. And that opening scene is also in a diner. Yes, yes. With Tim Roth. About to rob the place. Yeah, they're yeah. about to rob the restaurant. And that restaurant. super sweet woman that yes. he was like, get on your knees, you fucking cocksuckers. Yeah. So good. It's incredible. so good. Then you go straight into the car with Travolta and Sam Jackson talking about Europe. Yeah. You are. You're just on a ride the whole time. It's incredible. He, I mean- yeah. What a masterpiece. One of the facts is how much did Jackie Brown make? And that's on the same site, obviously. 39 million worldwide. Mm. Um, That's it. That was everything. Yeah. Not very many facts, but a lot of cool factor. He's so tall, right? Yeah. Much taller than I expected. Mm-hmm. Big boy. He's a big boy. Well, one thing we didn't talk oh, about was the nervous. foot fetish, but I'm not going to bring that up. Oh, right, right. Did you wear open-toed? I forget. Yeah, I took yeah. my shoes off. Oh, my God. And you took your shoes off. They were slides, and I just slid them oh, off. Oh, my God. You were trying to tempt him. Well, I just wanted to see if he was going to look at them. Perk up. Yeah. Oh, right, because you heard he has a foot fetish, or that's very well documented. Yeah, it's... it's... Something that people with pretty feet know. <laughs> <laughs> Or did maybe Eric tell you? No, I told him and he liked that. Oh, right. Because Eric has a foot fetish. Mm-hmm. And did we already talk about that he graded my foot? Eric? Yeah. Would he give it? No, graded with a cheese grater. Oh, my gosh. Was this <laughs> the most oddly erotic thing to witness? <laughs> not not erotic for me, but clearly for Eric. So <laughs> Eric has a he, – he doesn't wear shoes. He only wears flip-flops. So yes. his heels get a tremendous amount of callus buildup. And so he's taken to taking a cheese grater to them and right. and then and then moisturizing them. And he has a whole like three-step process. Yes. And he said, do you want me to grate your heels? And you said yes. Yeah. So I was just watching. You guys were in the backyard of his house. And he was like tenderly and carefully. It felt so nice. Grating your feet yeah. with a cheese grater. Yep. Oh, my God. This is real. <laughs> And then he put that aquifer on for a long time. Yeah, and he put a sock over it. And then he put a it. white, fresh sock over it. It was... For both of you, it looked very it was uh, sensual. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> he, Eric, worked at a shoe store when he was young. Yes. So he has a bit of a proclivity, a foot mm, proclivity. Yeah. And he has commented on my feet before. He likes them. He likes that they're small. Uh-huh. And he thinks they look nice. Yeah. And I like that he likes them because he's the expert. He's been dying to get at those piggies for a long time. And yeah. he, he was there and I was happy for him. Yeah, me too. It felt really good. Yeah. Because it's an innocuous, by the way, that's the whole thing in Pulp Fiction. He says Marcellus Wallace pushed a guy out of a window because he gave his wife a foot massage. Right. And he said that's the beauty of foot massages is there's something more going on. Exactly. Mm. So 
when I rewatched it and that part came up, of course, I was like, oh, this this makes sense. Because mm-hmm. word on the street is he likes feet. Yeah. And word on the street was used in the movie. Oh, my God. Ding, ding, ding. Pringle, everywhere. Pringle, Pringle. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah, that was awesome. That was really, really awesome. I could have done it for another five hours. Yeah. Yeah. I started getting really self-conscious about how much time we were because that was a long one right it was long but everyone was engaged and never felt like and i I guess i was kept telling myself because his movies are so long that he appreciates (laughs) long form you know like he wants to take some time with it he does i didn't get to say it in front of him but i will just i'm gonna put at the very top of the most dramatic stressful scenes i've ever seen is that opening scene in inglorious bastards where the they're hiding under the floorboards. Oh, my God. And Christoph Waltz is, like, yes. walking on top. Of, oh, oh, oh. I mean, what a master, the way that thing. Yeah. It's incredibly assembled intense. Oh, all right. Well, I love you. I love you. It was interesting to have a film crew staring at us there for the first half. I hope it, it didn't. The content didn't suffer. Oh, my God. Well, if it did. If it did, you'll we'll be back air. next week. Yeah, you can air your grievances on Instagram. Is, <laughs> tends to be the method of clapping back. <laughs> I love you. Love you. Bye.